The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 30th, 2019. On this week's show, Spencer Hall of Banner Society will join us to discuss the major college football semifinal games, LSU's irradiation of Oklahoma, and Clemson's VAR and bad coaching-assisted win over Ohio State. We've got an extended interview with Matthew Goodman, the author of The City Game, a new book about the point-shaving scandal that rocked college basketball 70 seasons ago and remains relevant today. And finally, we'll blow the final whistle on the 2010s by discussing our, and thanks to an outpouring of replies on Facebook, your favorite sports moments of the decade. Josh Levine is Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. He comes to us from New Orleans. Because where else would LSU's number one fan have been for the NCAA Division I football bowl subdivision semifinal Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl than New Orleans, except, of course, for at the game, which was in Atlanta or perhaps in Baton Rouge, where LSU is. Congratulations, Josh. Thank you, Stefan. But I'm not a fan. I'm a dispassionate journalist. Oh. And I'm always in a notional press box, so I never cheer for anything. Never experience joy. It's just all, it was very clinical, the semifinal victory. Maybe the 2020s will be different for you, Josh. You can cheer if LSU wins the national championship in a couple weeks. We did just get in under the wire, so that game can be a contender for best sports moment of the 2010s, but we'll get to that in a bit. Let's just bring Spencer right in. Spencer Hall is editor-at-large for SB Nation's Banner Society. Hey, Spencer. How are we doing, gentlemen? Well, LSU and Oklahoma were tied 7-7 with 7 minutes and 34 seconds to go in the first quarter. The next 11 possessions went like this. Touchdown, punt, touchdown, punt, touchdown, interception, touchdown, touchdown, go Sooners, touchdown, punt, touchdown. At halftime, the score was 49-14. LSU quarterback Joe Burrow had thrown for seven touchdowns downs and 403 yards after the fourth or fifth LSU touchdown I texted Josh good lord Burrow would rush for an eighth touchdown the final score would be 63 to 28 are we sure Spencer that LSU was playing Oklahoma and not I don't know Tufts no that sounds like Oklahoma if you've been paying attention to Oklahoma football because every time they've gotten into this spot they've turned into the Washington Generals but on a football field. I think it's important, by the way, that Oklahoma went in at the half and said, you know what? We need to play the second half like at 0-0. Just tied, boys. Let's just start over. Let's just reset. This was going to happen no matter who was in that four spot. No matter who. Maybe the only other team that could have put up a fight in any substantial fashion was Alabama or maybe Auburn. Remember, Auburn somehow managed to hold LSU to 20 points or 23 points and scored 20 to make the closest game LSU had all year. Again, this is Auburn doing what Auburn does, which is being frustrating, making a couple of very good appearances and then blowing a couple of easy games, losing to Florida. So, of course, I'm totally OK with that. But to get back on the main topic here, I don't really think this was that bad a performance by Oklahoma because this is one of the best college offenses I've ever seen, and I worship at the church of the fun and gun uh, and the spread. I grew up watching Steve Spurrier hang 50 on people, and this is this is astonishing what they've managed to do, both in terms of, like, I, I want people to know that the system and what they've done is amazing, 
But the individual talents within that, and I do not mean just Joe Burrow, are are amazing. By the way, the, my opinion of Burrow went up. I know that's shocking because he threw seven TDs and a half of football. <laughs> I'm going to repeat that for people listening. He threw seven touchdowns in a regulation FBS playoff game. It went up because they didn't have Clyde Edwards-Hilaire for most of the game. He was he did spot duty at best due to a hamstring injury. And Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, as anyone who's watched this team over the past year knows, he has been their their rock. He has been the keystone for the entire offense. And without him, they were better. I don't know, man. Burrow was so, so, so unbelievably good. And there's been so much talk about LSU's scheme and bringing in Joe Brady, the, um, you know, offensive uh, genius type guy. But LSU has, has guys running wide open all over the field, but no matter whether it's contested or they're wide open, Burrow hits them in the hands and stride every single time. They've got a pro quarterback and like a good, like a top pro quarterback, not just like a, a bottom tier uh, NFL guy throwing passes for them. And that's going to make anybody look great. And I think, you know, we, we should still revel in this LSU victory for a while. But, you know, I, th- I think we saw in these playoff games that Justin Fields is good, but the better quarterbacks one and i think that that's not like a super sophisticated uh, way to analyze the way these football games played out but it is extremely accurate but it, it helps to have scads of time when you're the quarterback in the pocket and burrow had scads of time i mean how good is this offensive line i mean it did not feel like a fair matchup there either I think that speaks, by the way, to a larger trend in college football and something that Oklahoma has suffered from in particular, which is that the further west you go, the smaller your defensive linemen get. Hmm. You need big, pushing, fast, agile defensive linemen. And this speaks to when you go, okay, well, why wasn't Oklahoma competitive? Okay, first of all, it's because LSU is very, very good, and their offensive line is the best in the country and what is pedigreed as such since they won the award for best offensive line. If you haven't seen the trophy for that, by the way, it's like the size of your house. It's an appropriately sized trophy with five enormous dudes on it. It has to weigh at least 7,000 pounds. But the reason that you don't see Oklahoma competing and one of the reasons that you see you've seen Texas fall off, which is surprising given the geography, but not when you lay it out like this, is You need defensive linemen to compete. Defensive linemen on the whole uh, come mostly from the south and the east. And most recruits commit to a spot within two hours of their home. That's why the Pac-12 doesn't have very many. You get a couple. uh, That is one reason that that Pac-12 schools have begun hitting Polynesia really, really hard in recruiting. Uh, It's probably the best way to put it when you go, well, Hawaii and Samoa and then like a little bit of a little bit of American Samoa. Yeah, just all of those recruits go to the Pac-12 now. But even then, they can't get the beef to compete on the defensive line and make guys like Joe Burrow nervous or unsteady in the pocket. It Go back to Clemson and Ohio State. You get guys who are from the South and the East who compete really well on the defensive line. And that's why that was a slobber knocker. And that's why OU LSU was a track meet, a one-way track meet where one team's engine blew up about 10 yards off the finish line or start line. Clemson won that game 29 to 23 in Arizona in what you described, Spencer, as four hours of 2019's most violent hitting consistent with immense cruelty. That was a great game. It was. I don't have any complaints about that game other than this. 
that if you saw the intensity with which both teams played for four quarters, I mean four quarters of really malicious contact, especially on Ohio State's part, because that defense is was in peak form facing an elite offense that really didn't begin to sort of crest until like the November. Oh, Clemson does this every year. It's almost managed where they take a month or so to figure things out and then they just start wiping people off the face of the planet. That Ohio State defense may be the factor that really puts LSU over in terms of a title game, because even with two weeks to recover, I don't really see physically how you manage to bounce back at 100 percent. It's the end of the year. Nobody's 100 percent anyway. But for a given value of ready, I don't see how Clemson can physically recuperate from that game, a game that was so intense that Travis Etienne, who is an outstanding power running back, okay, with incredible speed, they had to go to Trevor Lawrence to run. And Lawrence is not, you know, we're not talking about Johnny Manziel. We're not talking about a Jalen Hurts. We're not talking about a Lamar Jackson type quarterback here. He looked like Lamar Jackson at times against Ohio State, but they had to go to him to run the ball. And he took a walloping, very tough. These are young players. They recover a lot faster, but they're still going to have the lingering after effects of a brutal match against Ohio State in their systems when they roll in to face LSU, who, yeah, can can put seven TDs on the board in a half. It's a very tall order anyway. And in context and situationally, it just got a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, there was some brutality and cruelty going on in the Clemson-Ohio State game. In the LSU-Oklahoma game, the kind of cruelty was how LSU was selectively picking on Oklahoma's backups on on defense because of injuries, suspensions. There's that one guy for Oklahoma, number 44, who just for no particular reason decided to spear Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in the head instead of tackling Joe Burrow, stopping him for the first down. I think maybe because he just didn't want to be there anymore. And so he decided, I'm just going to get ejected for for targeting. But the ways in which LSU was able to isolate Clemson's weakest defenders, particularly in the secondary, was just clinical and mean. And I think, you know, you saw that in the Clemson-Ohio State game as well, where they saved that kind of option, uh, you know, fake Trevor Lawrence run after setting it up the whole game. And then that pop pass to ATN for what was the game winning touchdown. What all this kind of made me think of, Spencer, is that college football is, um, you know, particularly for the schools in, in the playoff, there's just so much money coming in. And the way that schools have figured out that they can get a competitive advantage, among other things, is like hiring all of these analysts. So the coaching staffs are now like 50 people deep. And so the amount of like intellectual firepower that goes into like figuring out how to like pick up 30 yards against Ohio State is just staggering. And these game plans are just like so crazily, um, I, I think at the high level, like smart and deep and developed. Yeah, and now you have a guy calling plays for LSU in Joe Brady, who like he's a year out of the NFL. Basically he is an assistant and they brought him in and it's clear that he calls the passes, but Steve Ensminger, their offensive coordinator is also kind of involved in the game planning on the run level. And also there's Clemson's uh, offensive coordinator just left to take the USF job, but there's a, there was a co-offensive coordinator and then all of, yeah, these analysts attached to it. Not everyone is Alabama, mind you. And in possession of, like, the Rand Corporation, 
up in the booth with 50 to 60 analysts, all with masters or PhDs, right? It's, it's a way of saying this. When somebody says that's the offensive coordinator, you should go, well, they're involved, right? But they might be only calling third downs. They might only be calling first downs. It really depends on how they want to do it. The days of somebody just sitting on the sideline uh, like, you know, Steve Spurrier or Mike Leach and just reeling off plays. Some people still do that, but the approaches are much more diverse than they used to be, especially at schools like this, where you have Ed Ogeron and Dabo Swinney, two guys who I think you can say are both different kinds of CEOs, right? Uh, Dabo Swinney is the type of CEO who clearly just wants to manage the brand, be the face, and hire assistants. Like, that's you, you want to know who's responsible for Clemson being great over the last 10 years? It's everybody. Dabo's a part of that. But there is a very tight, siloed, well-organized machine that's pushing players, recruits, money, talent, and interest and focus into that program. Like Clemson has got this thing where, you know, they were pushing like it's not just that they were good on the field. It's like their branding and their, their social media is, you know, years ahead of almost everyone else except for – LSU. If LSU has a guy who, as as bold as he sounds, right, he certainly sounds like a guy who should be Louisiana's head coach. He is also a CEO type who was who said, "Hey, I, I need a guy who can do this." So they went out and got Joe Brady. I need a guy who can be a defensive coordinator who I'm going to pay over a million a year and try to keep on, right, at all costs to be the CEO of my defense. I need people who are going to push us branding wise. He hired. Uh, like his assistant and, and one of the guys who's like like the leader in their their media relations is like was a local um, a, a local sports radio guy uh, Derek Panamsky for a while and he just said well listen it may be unconventional but I'm gonna hire you because you know the lay of the land you know how to talk to these guys for me right not only because I don't want to make mistakes when I'm talking to the media but. I want to, you know, I want to push the agenda. I want to make sure people are not only on our side, but think what we do is really cool. And they're, yeah, I don't know if you saw this. LSU is the only program I've ever seen that puts put little Boosie in a promo video for their Heisman winner, right? Like, like that's an amazing, amazing piece of branding that you take this like transfer from Ohio State, born in Ohio, this like super tall white knight looking QB, right? And he's backed up with like the LSU brand and Boosie playing and Teron Matthew narrating it. And that's an extraordinary move. Like I'm, I'm, I'm on one here. I'll be done in just a second, y'all. OK, but one, one further subclause listening to Marcus Spears talk about what LSU was 20 years ago, especially to African-American athletes in Louisiana. They, they weren't going to LSU. He was from Baton Rouge and he was like, I don't know about that. And then Nick Saban came in and changed that and made it the place to do that. And Ed Ogeron is just kind of like at the top of that like long mountain that Nick Saban and Les Miles started climbing to make it what it is today. It's there's there's so much going on here behind the scenes that like you can get tangled up in it real easily. But it, it takes more than just like, oh, these guys are good to explain how these two teams ended up exactly where they are right now. Back to Dabo for a second. I think maybe more than in games previous, although perhaps I just wasn't paying attention. He claimed after the game, not only that Clemson had God's favor, but his recitation of what he was saying to the players during the games like went as follows. It's like, I told Nolan Turner right before the game-winning interception, you're going to get the game-winning interception. I told Trevor Lawrence right before the game-winning drive, you're just going to drive down the field and, and win the game. 
Is Dabo arguing that he is willing these things to happen uh, or that he has some sort of second sight? Is he? Do we believe him? Is he actually saying this to every player on the sidelines and then he's only selectively quoting from the conversations that turned out to be accurate? Like, what do we think is going on here? I think Dabo will tell his team whatever he has to tell them to convince them that the job is not only going to get done, but that he can ordain it to happen. Ordain being the carefully chosen uh-huh. and intentional verb here. I think there is a bit of a misunderstanding, and and I this I, I'm part of this misunderstanding because I wasn't I, I'm from the South, but I wasn't raised like evangelical Protestant, and sometimes they'll use terms that just kind of take the lid off my head like God's favor. Like I wouldn't just drop that in conversation. Dabo and, and some other evangelical Christians will just say it, right? Like, where's your family's spiritual home? I'm like, uh, I don't know, Dave and Busters? Is that <laughs> right? Like that's it means something entirely different. So when he says like God's favor, that's just that that's a term that means something slightly different than what I'm thinking. It doesn't mean Clemson's favor. That just means like grace. Like, okay, hey, this happened and that's great. You know, Spur used to say that. Like he used to say, all right, you know, like God smiled on the Florida Gators. It didn't necessarily mean that, you know, he was favoring us necessarily. So I don't think that's quite it. But Dabo was also saying that, like, Clemson was, you know, disrespected going into the matchup with Ohio State. He's supposed to say that. He's going to say whatever lunatic things he has to say in order to motivate his players, even if the players know that it itself is a complete sham. That's just what he's got to do. But do the players know that? I mean, after the game, Trevor Lawrence... You know, quoted Ephesians and said it's all about God. And then he also said it's about our program and our brand. So all of that gets ingested by these young men who are part of the Clemson football program. They're choosing to go there. It's not like they're getting, I mean, some of them are are actually literally getting converted after they show up on campus, but it's like part of the pitch for why athletes go there. Yeah, Clemson's, Clemson is, by the way, like that predates Dabo and it predates even Tommy Bowden. It's part of their recruiting pitch from like recruiting videos from the 80s, which yeah. if you get a chance, by the way, go to YouTube and watch some recruiting videos from Clemson in the 1980s. Two words, Cybex machines. Lots of Cybex machines. Um, lots of good 1980s fitness workout gear in there. The, it's always been part of the pitch at Clemson and it's part of the pitch at most of these places. Clemson just has... Dabo, who happens to have a particularly powerful and cartoonish evangelical bent to him, uh, to the point where, yeah, they've, they've gotten some scrutiny for baptizing people in, like, you know, ice tubs, right? Because that's the thing that happens at Clemson, a state institution, and that's received some scrutiny as well. I, I think you'd be surprised what players will understand as motivation, and yet we'll kind of believe at the same time. Like Trevor Lawrence, I think, clearly believes that. I also think he's saying it because that's part of the messaging to keep everybody on the same page. You know, the Lawrence's, by the way, that's a fascinating family, like a really smart and more eccentric family than you think. Have you ever seen Trevor Lawrence's brother? No, have not. Go look at Trevor Lawrence's brother. He's actually like a very talented artist specializing in these visceral Francis Bacon kind of paintings. He looks like exactly like Trevor Lawrence. But if you made him a cartoon artist version of Trevor Lawrence, (laughs) I mean it. He has like the little hipster glasses. He's got a little beard. But otherwise, it's just Trevor Lawrence. It's not that they completely buy into it, but it's that they can, I think, coexist with that at the same time in a way that like, I don't know, if you're not if you're not raised within it, it seems odd. Right. But I think that for, for those people who are raised in it. It's just like breathing. You just you just say these things that might sound weird to you, but it's it's part of your faith. And by the way, that's like something that like I feel like I'm only just now 
right? As a middle-aged dude from here, I'm only just now sort of beginning to understand that. Stefan, I don't think we need to adjudicate all of the calls in the Ohio State-Clemson game, but just if we can, for a very brief moment, embody the attitude and values and beliefs of an Ohio State fan, uh, player, coach, whatever, that was rough. I mean, that is a, that is a rough way to lose. I mean, there, there's so much bargaining you can do after the game, whether it's about the three field goals they kicked when they're in the red zone, about the two drops that J.K. Dobbins, who had an amazing game, that he nevertheless dropped passes, one of which was certainly a touchdown, one of which probably would have been, about the fumble return for a touchdown that was overruled, about Ryan Day's decision not to go for it on, on fourth down after making a great decision to go for it on fourth earlier in the fourth quarter. Just like so many things that could have changed the outcome um, that just didn't go their way. It's sad. Sad for them. Yeah, really sad for them. Their fan base. Taking it well, not complaining at all. Stoics. To the end, really embodying the spirit. Can neither of you just shed some light on for me why they're one of the most solipsistic, narcissistic like fan bases <laughs> I've ever seen. I can't imagine how a university that has like 100,000 graduates a year manages to feel like they're the only people on the planet that anything bad ever happens to. <laughs> What about that call in the uh, against Miami that time? Shouldn't they uh, have realized that they got God's favor that time and and just think that that everything else is gravy? I think they should. Yeah, they should. They should talk to their Lord and Savior about that. That's what I do because I don't want to hear about it because you complain about the officiating. I think that makes you a big old loser. I just do. Like I just you had Ohio State could have had twenty one points and they changed it in for nine on three red zone possessions. Uh-huh. They could have won the game outright. Uh, but instead, they let Clemson in four plays. I went and looked at the box score. You know, like normally you look at a drive and like it's like, oh, it goes about like five inches down the page, right, on a box score. No, this one's like an inch. It's four plays, 94 yards. They had Clemson at the six and let them go 94 yards for a game-winning score and then got the ball back and then coughed it up in the end zone. So I don't know. Be be mad about that and be better. At <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's a kind of a pet peeve of mine. Like, I think all of that is is true, but it's it's like in the Ram Saints game last year, everyone was like, "Oh, well, you know, you can't complain about the refs uh, at the end because you know the the Saints uh, shouldn't shouldn't have allowed it to be that close in the first place. They should have won by more points." It's like, yeah, that's like easy to say, but it's like it's like Clemson. They're really good. You're not going to beat them by that many points. Like the reason that you didn't score all those touchdowns was because you're playing freaking Clemson. Like that's the thing. Like, I don't know, you get, you get in the red zone three times against them with Justin Fields, a QB and, J- and JK Dobbins. And guess what they do on first and second down. They passed pass. when Dobbins was running all over him. It was healthy. Well, and you can Josh certainly say that choosing to punt on fourth and one mm-hmm. from the plus 40 with three minutes to go. Oh, plus 40, real football man terminology. Thank Continue. you. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, it took Clemson three plays to get from the six-yard line to mm-hmm. where OSU had punted from. That's bad decision-making. It's a hard game, and it's hard to win. And especially it's hard to win if you're playing Clemson. And it's also hard to win if you fuck up a bunch of times. So I think we're all in agreement here. Yeah. You know, you know what the actual answer is and that LSU's figured out? It's easier to win if you throw seven TDs in half. <laughs> you should do that instead. Spencer Hall is editor-at-large for SB Nation's Banner Society. Spencer, thank you, as always, for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% 
on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Seventy years ago, the City College of New York began what would be the greatest season in the history of men's college basketball, one that started in a small campus gym in a Gothic building in Harlem and ended in front of 18,000 people in Madison Square Garden with victories in the final games of both the NIT and NCAA tournaments. But the season is remembered now not because of the dual championships, but because the players on the City College Beavers took money from gamblers to shave points in games along the way. The story of the 1949-1950 CCNY basketball team is very much of its time. Silk short shorts, hook and set shots, smoke-filled arenas, a corrupt city entirely on the take. But when it comes to college sports, it's a story for all times, including the current ones. One fact we refuse to face, a newspaper editor wrote back then, is that there are no amateurs in big-time college sports. There are only underpaid professionals. Matthew Goodman is the author of a new book titled The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. Someone wrote on the back cover that the city game is exhaustively reported, lavishly detailed, expertly told, and the gripping account of the biggest scandal in the history of American sports— That's my full disclosure. Matthew Goodman joins us now from Slate's studio in Brooklyn. Hey, Matthew, congrats on the book. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Let's start with the unlikely school at the center of the scandal. City College was a tuition-free, merit-based college for the children of working class, immigrants, minorities, many of them first generation. The composition of the team was remarkable. Four African-Americans and 11 Jews. The starting five was two black players and three Jewish ones. By contrast, in 1949, the NBA didn't have a single black player. But CCNY wasn't a basketball backwater. The coach Nat Holman was a legend on the court and on the bench. CCNY was really a remarkable institution, and the team, the remarkable team, was befitting of that institution. CCNY, as you mentioned, was uh, tuition-free. It was merit-based. It was, uh, you had to take a test to get in, a very rigorous test, and have a very high grade point average. It was the place where, for generations, New York's brightest high school students whose parents couldn't afford to send them to a private school got an education that by some accounts was comparable to any other in the country. You know, CCNY was referred to as the Harvard of the proletariat, you know, the working class Harvard. It was really a remarkable place. It was also probably the most left-wing college in the nation. One historian called it the longest-running radical social experiment in United States history. Um, It was where generations of the children of immigrants uh, became assimilated uh, into American society. And in that way, this team, this remarkable team, was uh, pretty typical of that. As you mentioned, it was 11 Jews and four African Americans, both the The coach, um, Nat Holman, and the assistant coach, Bobby Sand, were Jewish. City College itself was overwhelmingly Jewish, uh, so much so that the joke around around the campus was that CCNY stood for Circumcised Citizens of New York. Some people said Christian College, now Yiddish. It was an overwhelmingly (laughs) Jewish school. So if you look at 
early write-ups of basketball, whether pro or college, there's a lot of talk about how Jews are really good at the sport because they're so crafty. (laughs) That's right. So if we want to lean into that stereotype, um, what were the kind of traits of this team? Did they play a particular style or what was notable about the kind of on-court game here? Yeah. uh, I mean, their their coach was Nat Holman, who had learned, who, who was, by the way, arguably the greatest himself the greatest basketball player of his time and a huge celebrity too right? a huge celebrity i mean he was in wheaties ads he was in ovaltine ads uh he got offered the original gig to from the converse rubber company of 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 massachusetts in 1921 uh to go around and and hawk their new line of high top sneakers so why aren't we For, wearing nat holman's instead of because he said no he was already rich so he said <laughs> no he didn't need the 50 bucks a week and uh it went to another popular player of the time a guy named chuck taylor uh so yes we could we could be wearing the nat holman all-star sneakers but nat holman had learned the game nat holman was from the lower east side of new york his real name was nathan Hel- Elmanovich. Um, and he had grown up learning the game in the settlement houses, the Jewish settlement houses of the Lower East Side, places like the Henry Street Settlement House. And so the game that he had learned was played on these very small courts with very low ceilings. And it involved a lot of movement by all of the players, constant passing. There was no shot clock, of course, so they could be very patient in waiting for a man to get open. And that was more or less the kind of game that City College was still playing. Um, It was known colloquially back then as Jew ball because it had come from those Jewish settlement houses. So if you go back and you look at films of those games, you're going to see a tremendous amount of movement um, among the players. They ran a play called The Weave, where all five players were moving in and out constantly uh, to disrupt the opponent's defense. That was the kind of game that City played. And that style of play, though, by the 1940s was starting to be phased out. It was it was perceived as, as old-fashioned. And you quoted in the book from Sport Magazine at the time that Holman had many a brush with impetuous youngsters who felt he was too old-fashioned, too set in his ways, too prone to dismiss everything new as foolish and unreliable. So CCNY was on the on the on the on a sort of downward arc in the 1940s. He changed though. Well, he did really at the urging of his assistant coach, a guy by the name of Bobby Sand, whose reputation I've tried to uh, bring out of the shadows um, in this book. Bobby Sand was an amazing guy. He himself had played for Nat Holman when he was at City College. He, t- he was the only basketball player who was also a Rhodes Scholar uh, in the history of City College basketball. He spoke five languages. Uh, he was really an incredible guy. And the players, almost to a man, the ones from that time with whom I spoke for this book, said to me, Bobby Sand was my coach, not Nat Holman. Bobby Sand was the one who taught me the game. It was Bobby Sand who basically brought the fast break to City College, who had to convince Nat Holman to use the fast break. So the City College offense of the 1949-50 season is this kind of amazing amalgam of old-school weave motion offense and the newfangled fast break that Bobby Sand um, had introduced to the team. All right, let's set the scene for this big game they played against Kentucky, which is Kentucky is the college basketball program and Adolph Rupp is the Mm -hmm. college basketball coach. And this is a team that is the exact opposite 
of CCNY in yeah. terms of their approach to uh, integration. Uh, all white, Adolph Rupp would not play against teams with black players in Kentucky. He assented to play against black players on the road, I suppose. Um, so they have this game in the NIT in Madison Square Garden. What, what can you kind of tell us about the lead up to the game and the game itself? Right. This was the game that everyone was waiting for, the quarterfinal game. Uh, it's the game that to this day, everybody who was there still remembers. Uh, Kentucky, as you mentioned, was really the premier team in college basketball. They were kind of to college basketball what the New York Yankees were to Major League Baseball. They were the glamour team, the team that was always considered the favorite to win the championship. Um, they had won the NIT, I think, twice in the previous four years in the NCAA once. Uh, they had three guys in the All-America starting five, which had never happened before. But at the same time that they were this, the, the, the sort of pinnacle of athletic excellence, they were the embodiment of Old South racism. They had never had a black player. They would not have a black player on the team for another 20 20 years, long after other teams in the SEC did. Um, the campus itself was segregated. There wasn't a single black student among the 10,000 students on the campus. Uh, the graduate program had been integrated under force of court order, uh, a case that had been handled by a young attorney by the name of Thurgood Marshall. Uh, but there was a great deal of protest over that integration. There had been seven cross burnings um, on the campus that previous summer in protest of that integration. Um, and Adolf Rupp, as you mentioned, um, had made clear his position on racial issues. I found in an interview that he gave with a bunch of New York sports writers where he said that, uh, as I put in the book, he theologized that uh, God did not intend for a white boy to play against a colored boy, else he wouldn't have painted them different colors. That was Adolf Rupp. And now they were coming to New York to play this team that was entirely minority players, um, representing a college that was the most progressive college, arguably, in the nation, in the most diverse place on earth, um, New York City. So it seemed um, what today we might call not just a basketball game, but a culture war. Um, and the outcome was just um, amazing. Uh, I should mention, too, that this incredible moment happened just before the game began, when City took the court, they had three African-American players, not just two, and they reached out their hands to shake hands with the Kentucky players, and the Kentucky players turned away. They refused to shake hands with the black players on City College. It was an electrifying moment in the garden. Nobody could quite believe what they had seen. And then, you know, the game started and City took off. Uh, up and down the court, and and the Kentucky players looked old and slow and confused. And City scored 13 of the first 14 points, and they ended up winning the game, 89 to 50, the worst defeat in Adolph Rupp's career at the University of Kentucky. And then City College went on to beat Bradley to win that tournament, the NIT, and then they beat Bradley again to win the NCAA tournament. And this was a time when schools did play in both. Um, both of those were, as I mentioned earlier, in the Garden. The Garden was the mecca of college basketball, right? This was a time when pro basketball was in its infancy. Pro games, the Knicks would get shunted to some smaller arena if there was a conflict with a college game. Um, and that environment is what fostered, of course, the reason that we remember City College and the reason that you wrote this book. This was uh, gamblers were an enormous part of basketball at the time. Sort of describe the scene around college sports for us, Matthew, and, and how gamblers effectively infiltrated uh, the game. Right. 
I mean, there were a tremendous number of bookmakers in the garden on a col- any given college basketball night. It was kind of an open secret. Um, it was estimated that um, as much as three hundred thousand dollars were bet was bet on each college game, uh, which was a huge amount um, at the time. Um, there were about four thousand sports bookmakers in New York City in those years. The largest one who becomes a major character in my book is a guy named Harry Gross, a bookmaker in Brooklyn, who was taking in twenty million dollars a year in sports bets, equivalent to over two hundred million dollars a year in today's currency, and was protecting himself by shelling out a million dollars a year in bribes to policemen and politicians to protect his uh, his syndicate. So there was a tremendous amount of bookmaking. And there had been, for a number of years, rumors of point shaving um, in college basketball, right? The idea that a, that a player would take money from a gambler, not to lose a game intentionally, but just to come in under the point spread, right? To win by eight points instead of nine, you know, whatever it might be. Um, And as it turned out, that had, in fact, been going on for a number of years. Um, And then uh, in the following season, after the double championship, uh, ultimately seven members of the City College team were arrested um, for conspiring with gamblers to shave points. Was the point shaving obvious to observers? Like if you're just a fan in the crowd and you didn't um, know that anybody was on the take. Could you just tell based on the behavior of the players what was going on? Not really. You know, guys like Nat Holman, who had been watching basketball all his life, claimed that he could never tell the difference. Uh, Claire B., the coach of LIU, the same thing. He claimed he could never tell the difference. You know, at that time, there were a lot of turnovers in college basketball. Uh, you know, a good a good shooter would make maybe 30% of his shots. So playing badly was normal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, making mistakes was, you know, it was all – this is why it was so um, easy to do because a lot of this happened just in the normal course of competition anyway. And it was very easy just to miss a shot intentionally when, like I said, you missed most of your shots anyway uh, or just pick up your man a split second too late so he could get a shot off. Um, or, you know, fumble a rebound or throw a pass out of bounds. This kind of thing happened normally. Um, so, like I said, there was always suspicion of point shaving, but it wasn't really obvious um, to the naked eye that this was going on. But Holman certainly knew. Gamblers had approached CCNY players in 1945, just a few years before this happened. Uh, gamblers were arrested in, in mm-hmm. early 1949 for trying right. to fix a game between Manhattan College and George Washington, as you reported. And Holman himself, in the in, during the season said publicly, big money wagers are going to ruin the game. That was during the championship season. That's right. And and I discovered that he had confided in a fellow coach that season before his players got arrested that he was worried about this. Yeah. You know, there was a little bit of, you know, Richard Nixon a little bit in Nat Holman, you know, that this sort of uh, idea of plausible deniability that that uh, this had all gone on below him um, out of the range of his knowledge. And ultimately, of course, Holman kind of skated through yeah. um, and retained his job. 
um, as head coach at City College till he, he retired years later. And now he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, whereas his assistant coach, Bobby Sand, really took the fall and ended up getting fired as a coach and getting exiled from the classroom. He was a wonderful economics teacher and didn't teach again for about 15 years. So, you know, it's a pretty typical story where the head guy um, skates through and the guy below him ends up uh, taking the fall. So it seemed like for the players to generalize, one of the big motivations to do this was a very modern seeming anger at amateurism the enforcement of amateurism, seeing these huge crowds at the yeah. garden, and then they go home to the tenements right. where they live. Can you kind of personalize that story for us? Just tell us about maybe one of the the players and, and mm-hmm. what his motivation was. Yeah. You know, in the newspapers, the players were portrayed simply as greedy, corrupt, immoral kids who were willing to sell out their team for a few bucks. But as I've discovered in conversations with these guys and, you know, with their friends and family and neighbors, their motivations were quite complex. And and there were a lot of different reasons why they did it. You know, one guy, as you mentioned, had a kind of almost entrepreneurial view of the thing. You know, he would, he said to me, look, I'd go into the garden and it would be full, 18,000 fans. And I would think to myself, every one of these people paid to get in here tonight. Yeah. And where did that money go? Not to me. I was, he said, I was making five bucks scalping my pair of free tickets that I got for the game. So he felt sort of entitled to get some money when everybody around him was getting rich off of the game. For other guys, it was a very different motivation. You know, maybe they were doing it because their parents were poor and they wanted to take some money and down the road they were going to, you know, help their parents pay off a mortgage on their house, for instance. That was Eddie Roman wanted to do that. One of the main characters of my book, Floyd Lane, didn't want to do it. You know, he had resisted doing it on two separate occasions. He was one of the African-American players on the team. He was one of the African-American players. He's still alive. He's an amazing guy, 89 years old, uh, just turned 90, as a matter of fact. Uh, But he had said no on two separate occasions, and he finally gave in when he realized that all of the other players on the team were doing it, and he ended up taking $3,000. He wrapped it in a handkerchief and buried it in a flower pot in his bedroom so his mother, Alina, would not find out. He didn't touch any of the money except for $110 that he took to buy his mother a washing machine for Christmas because she had never had a washing machine, and the rest of it remained untouched. But he was arrested along with all of the other guys, They were thrown out of college, and they were banned from the NBA for life. Uh, Floyd, like the rest of them, lived in the shadow of the scandal for the remainder of his life. This was a a huge deal at the time. Can you give us a sense of how it was covered by the media and the public? I mean, it's also worth noting that the police were corrupt, politicians were corrupt, gambling was tolerated, and in fact— cops were paid off by gamblers. Um, right. How did the media view this and, and how did that affect the perception of the players once they were arrested? Right. I mean, you're absolutely right that that there was a just a jaw-dropping amount of corruption in New York um, in those in those years, uh, as I as I detail in the book. And ultimately, the mayor and the police commissioner both resigned uh, directly or indirectly from a separate bookmaking scandal, the Harry Gross scandal. Uh, so there was a huge amount um, of bribes uh, going on in New York at that time. But you know, the players became 
villains instantly, you know, like literally overnight, the night that they got arrested. Once the radio reports came out the next day, they had gone from hero to villain. They had been the toast of New York. They, they seemed to represent everything that New York wanted to believe about itself. You know, they represented racial harmony and civic virtue, the triumph of the underdog. And then suddenly, they were the opposite of that. And, um, and the sense of outrage, the sense of betrayal um, that they represented uh, in New York was extreme. Uh, they were really shunned in the media, and there was almost no one uh, was willing to stand up for them in the media. So there's a quote that I wanted to read, Eddie Roman, in an interview, kind of taking a longer view of the scandal when he was in his 30s, said, the American people have a romanticized view of athletics. They want to identify with the fantasy that the world of sports has come to represent. Whenever you break some kind of moral code, when you do something to the basic fiber of something people believe in, you face wrath that is much stronger than an ordinary crime. It's more acceptable to commit burglary or assault than to accept money for shaving points. People think, how can they do that to a fan? It's an illusion that it's a sport. They get angry at anyone breaking that illusion. People identify with athletes and have a romanticized view of them. And anyone who breaks that code and doesn't fit into that image, they reject him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was really speaking from personal experience, deep, deeply felt personal experience. Eddie Roman was an amazing individual, uh, extremely bright, extremely thoughtful. Um, and he and Floyd maintained a friendship for the rest of their lives. That's really the center of my book, the, the friendship between this Jewish player and this African-American player. You know, they had been placed on a pedestal uh, because of what they represented uh, to New York. You know, the, the idea of this integrated group of, of outer borough poor kids who had achieved unparalleled success. They hadn't necessarily asked for that, but that's what they were turned into. And thus, when they were exposed as idols with clay feet, the fall was all the harder because people had invested so much emotionally in them. You know, it's one thing when you find out that the cop on the corner is taking a bribe from a bookmaker. You know, you kind of half expect that anyway, or a politician is taking money, you know. Well, they're all corrupt anyway, but when the player, this young guy, this hero who you've stood and cheered for at the garden and, and, and given your heart to turns out to have been doing the same thing, well, the emotional impact is all the greater. And as a result of that, these players um, really suffered, uh, really for the rest of their lives. I mean, there were a few sports writers, I guess, who were sympathetic. Jimmy Cannon, a yes. prominent writer for the, for the Post in those days, was one he of was. them. Yes, but, he but was. At the same time, and you bring this up in the book, just how overlooked the reality of the situation these kids were placed in was. These gamblers were terrifying people. They were persuasive. They were intimidating. Yeah. The right. kids were vulnerable. And, and obviously, the reason point shaving was and probably is allowed to succeed is because of the players themselves being so vulnerable and so young and so right. persuadable and in some cases so resentful. Right. I'm mean, Stephanie, you make a very, very good point. Um, you know, one of the one of my goals in writing this book was to help the reader try to get beyond the cliches of the newspaper headlines, you know, this idea, which is translatable to today's 
um, sports as well, you know, the idea of, well, you know, they're just bad guys, they're just corrupt, they're just amoral or immoral, whatever it may be. And to, and to have the reader begin to ask him or herself, what would I have done if I were in that situation? If I was a poor kid and maybe, you know, I was watching my parents worry every night at the kitchen table because they couldn't pay off their mortgage. And suddenly somebody was offering me $2,000. Not to lose a game, but just to alter the score a little bit when maybe a week from now, nobody's going to remember what the score of that game was anyway. And you knew that... Until this guy Goodman writes a book about us <laughs> 70 years later. And, 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 you know, everybody else was doing it. And it had been going on for years and you knew that because you had played on the schoolyard with guys who were doing it and told you about it. And not, and and not got, only that, Matthew, but they were getting paid, for instance, to play in summer camps, in, absolutely. The, in the Catskills, in the in the hotels, in the hotels, Absolute, as you absolutely. beautifully in the story. Abso- yeah. and, and on top of that, they also knew that their academic records were being falsified, their test <laughs> yes. scores were falsified, the they standards were living, that, yes. they, that, they, that they attended exactly. City College on were exactly. relaxed because they were top athletes. As it turned out later, right, they were living in a world of corruption. And I guess that was the question that I wanted to ask the reader. What would you have done in that situation? You know, maybe you would have taken the money. Maybe you wouldn't have taken the money. You, you notice, by the way, that everybody around you is getting rich off the game. You know, the promoter of the college basketball games at the Garden, Ned Irish, when he started promoting college basketball games, amateur games, in 1934, he was a sports writer making 48 bucks a week. By 1950, he was making $150,000 a year and lived on Park Avenue as a result of your talents. You know, this is a situation, and this is true, even more true today, that's almost unique in American society. You have a group of talented, poor, young kids who are able to make enormous profits for other people, and yet they are not allowed to partake of any of that themselves. As long as you have a situation like that, you're always going to have a field that's ripe for bribery. So I think the disdain for point shaving is appropriate. Like I think that sports fans are rightly outraged uh, when they learn that games are not on the level. And and I think Eddie Roman is right that the degree is perhaps overstated if we say that it's worse than than robbery or, or some other crime. But I guess is the argument that because this was New York City, because this was a city where these were kind of the rules of the game at the time, like if the police were corrupt, could you even go to the police and say, this guy, you know, could you go to the media and say, this is what's What's happening? Like, was there really no other option for them than to succumb? I wouldn't say there was no option. And there were guys who didn't do it. You know, there were guys who refused to go in on it. Uh, you know, there was this the famous case of Junius Kellogg, this first African-American player at Manhattan College who blew the whistle um, when, he, when he was offered to do this by a, uh, two former players of his team. So I'm not trying to say that they had to do it or that they should have done it or that it was okay to do it. I think that almost all of these guys regretted what they did ultimately and not just because they got caught but because they came to understand that it was wrong to do that, um, that it wasn't on the level um, and that they had in a certain sense betrayed their school and betrayed their fans and so forth. Kind of as the school had betrayed them. They well, that's the thing the is, that, back. is that I was trying to, to, to point out 
the complexity of, of, of what was going on and to try to and to try to show that these players had really gotten caught up in a vast web of corruption that extended far beyond them. You know, they became, in a, in a sense, the scapegoats. But, you know, this was a, a web of corruption that ultimately reached the absolute upper echelons of the New York City political structure, you know, all the way up to the mayor uh, who ended up resigning. And it turned out that he was taking money from Harry Gross, the bookmaker, as well. So um, it it was uh, just a very, very complicated um, and ambiguous situation for these guys. Point shaving, of course, didn't stop. There was another uh, multi-school scandal in 1961, Boston College in 1979, 1985, 1997. And ultimately, it's hard not to read your book and look through the lens of history and current events and say that there's only one reason that this continues to happen. And that is the structure of amateurism, of shamateurism in American college sports. Well, you pointed out one of the quotes that I find most significant in the whole book, the quote from the editor of the late lamented newspaper, The Daily Compass uh, in New York, who said, rightly, you know, the one fact that we refuse to face is that there are no amateurs in big time college basketball. There were only underpaid professionals. Um, and, you know, ultimately, the scandal spread beyond New York City and it ultimately touched Kentucky. You know, three members of Rupp's team got implicated and Bradley um, became implicated as well. Th- 33 guys uh, charged with a crime. And people said, well, we've rooted it out. You know, we've we've eliminated point shaving now. But as you point out, 10 years later in 1961, there was another scandal and then another one in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. All of the factors that contributed to the possibility of point shaving in 1950 are still true today, even more so. You know, Nat Holman, the legendary Nat Holman, was making $8,500 a year to coach City College, which is equivalent to $90,000 a year today. Well, John Calipari is making upwards of $7 million a year at Kentucky. Krzyzewski is making $7 million a year. You have 69 Div 1 men's basketball coaches who are making a million dollars a year or more. You have the NCAA is making $8.8 billion from their recent TV contract. You have the schools making millions of dollars from sneaker companies where the players become kind of walking advertisements like NASCAR, you know, autos. Uh, all of those conditions, you know, the, the dichotomy between the huge amount of money flowing through the game and the players not being allowed to touch any of it, those conditions are even worse today. The situation is even starker today than it was in 1950. The book is The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. It is, in fact, exhaustively reported, lavishly detailed, and expertly told (laughs) by Matthew Goodman. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
All right, we're about to talk about some great sports moments from the decade past. And I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Josh and I will bring you more great moments, personal moments from our listeners that you sent in to our Facebook page. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. All right, Stefan, we have been doing this show for a little bit more than a decade now, which is crazy. But as we discuss the greatest moments of the 2010s in sports in general, and also for us personally, we will have to discard the approximately five months of 2009 when Hang Up and Listen began, as they do not fit into this rubric we've just established. Are you okay with that? Since I can't remember anything that happened in the last half of 2009, I'm fine with that. There's some really good Tim Tebow moments that we're going to have to put on the shelf uh, for the segment. Shit. <laughs> it's, it's rough, but we'll make it through together. Can we go back and do the best of the 2000s? We'll do that at the end of the 2020s, because I don't think we've prepared for that. Or maybe at the end of the century. <laughs> yeah, I think radical life extension will take hold, and we'll be able to talk about the LSU-Oklahoma NCAA semi-final uh, playoff game uh, for decades to come. So you all have that to look forward to. But uh, with the help of our listeners, and this was, a you know, to be a little bit sentimental, Stefan, this was a really good reminder of what a great community we have yes. around the show, that people contributed their... Um, thoughts on their favorite sports moments, their what, what they think are the most significant sports moments. And it was a really great list. And so I thought, um, what better way to end the decade than to kind of walk through what our listeners' favorite moments were and chime in with some of our own. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out to, I, I flagged this earlier in the show as we do, but on the bonus segment, we'll talk about some of the personal, really personal moments that um, some of our listeners contributed to the thread. And they're really touching. And it turns out they kind of dovetail with a lot of the ways I thought about sports for the past decade. So looking forward to that in the bonus segment. So the AP named its athletes of the decade, Stefan, and they were, I think, unsurprisingly, Serena Williams mm -hmm. and LeBron James. And we have some Serena and LeBron moments that folks contributed with LeBron. Let's start there. Um, there are a bunch of different uh, possibilities depending on how kind of game specific or macro you want to get. The three um, kind of contenders, if you want a LeBron specific moment of the decade, are the decision in July 2010, um, the kind of bigger picture moment of LeBron winning the title in Cleveland, and then the really micro moment of LeBron chasing down Andre Iguodala in Game 7 of the 2016 NBA Finals. I wrote a little tiny bit about it um, in a piece last week where I argued that that moment for LeBron was kind of his career in microcosm. In a way, it, it's often not really that neat where we get a career-defining moment for an athlete, but just the feat of athleticism and of will and drive and doing it in the final moments of, um, you know, I hate to use the word legacy-defining, but legacy-defining game, yeah. winning that title for for Cleveland. You know, that's an appropriate usage of that of that phrase. If right, and I, I was going to say, in doing it while wearing the jersey that has the name of a city on it that hadn't won a championship in fifty years. 
it was really in a decade-defining way, too. And LeBron, as the choice for athlete of the decade, makes all the sense in the world because beyond those sort of signature moments and winning, you know, if you look at it a little more sort of let's pull back the camera and see Jim Gray and LeBron from a little bit farther away. I mean, it sort of starts with this sort of much criticized sort of egocentric moment of LeBron at age 24, 25, making a spectacle of his career. And as the decade progresses, it becomes less sort of about him qua him than it does about the sport and achievement and just being the best at what he does um, as anybody who's ever played. I mean, you think also about LeBron sort of really redefining how we think about the way NBA players sees their power as free agents of their of their careers, but also as business people. Um, and I think LeBron sort of deserves to be recognized for that in this decade as well. Yeah, I mean, you use the word spectacle in kind of a pejorative sense. I got I got the feeling, but the decision has looked better in retrospect than it did at the time. And what LeBron, you know, what changed between the decision and the Lee Jenkins Sports Illustrated cover story of I'm going back to Cleveland is that LeBron got savvier about what we want right. as consumers of sports. He, I don't think, necessarily changed his philosophy about empowering himself and in turn, I think, empowering other players to make their own decisions about where they wanted to play. And there have been some negative repercussions from that if we're thinking kind of selfishly as fans, you know, the Anthony Davis and and the way mm-hmm. that played out and kind of getting together with LeBron to start the uh, the 2020s, the way that, that that happened and demanding a trade and sitting out with a lot of time left on a contract, I think you could argue that that's, you know, not ideal for, for anyone. It wasn't necessarily great for Davis's reputation. It wasn't great for his team. It wasn't great for the league. But I think if you, again, zoom out and think about this in the bigger picture, it was a huge shift from the beginning of the decade to the end in terms of how players navigate these decisions, in terms of you know the, the fact that these decisions are made more often. And I think very broadly in terms of fan acceptance of you know the fact that players are going to choose, uh, particularly the NBA, where they want to play. And then let's take a look at Serena's career over this decade too, Josh. I mean, again, you know, if you had to pick a defining moment for Serena, I, I'd be loath to pick the meltdown at the U.S. Open, but it certainly was the most dramatic and the way that it affected her, her opponent, the way she was viewed, what it says about the way the media and culture, um, how they treat a a successful black woman athlete. I mean, those were all really compelling storylines. Ultimately, though, I mean, it really was just about an athlete melting down. um, And that provided the drama. But everything else Serena Williams did over this decade has been insane. I mean, injuries, pregnancy, a difficult pregnancy, a difficult recovery, um, still threatening to to set the record for the most major championships by a woman. Um, she is the athlete of the decade, possibly the female athlete of all time. Yeah, I think all of that is right. And, you know, I think why Serena and LeBron fill these slots is because they've become such enormous figures in the culture that transcend sports. And we care about what they do and what they say and how they act independent 
of how they perform. And the reason that we do is because their performances are unprecedented, that they've gotten to the level where, you know, we kind of hold them to a a ridiculous standard. And it's a standard that they perpetually redraw the bar so it keeps going higher and higher. And I think the reason that they're athletes of the 2010s in large part is that they could have also been the best athletes of the 2000s. And that is so insane and and remarkable to think about. And I look forward to having this conversation about them in 2029. All right, now let's talk about some team accomplishments. And there were obviously a lot of those. And a lot of them were really, really sort of lifetime achievements. And you have to start, I think, with the Cubs winning the World Series for the first time since 1908. Andrew Loden wrote, hate to say it, but it's the Cubs. Scott Holland posted a, a GIF of the last out of the World Series. And when you frame these sort of team narratives and long-suffering fan bases, and yeah, we can get sick of the story and Billy Goats and Harry Carey and all that bullshit, but it really is kind of amazing when the probability finally is ended, the probability, the unlikely probability that a team could go 100 plus years without winning a championship, because it's in large part random, the accumulation of players and how they perform on the field. And to have it year after year after year go unaccomplished at the end is remarkable. And to see it end is really great. Yeah. And we got the Red Sox in the 2000s, the Cubs in the 2010s. And it's obviously a much bigger deal for those fan bases and for people who have been, you know, fans of that team and generations through their families. A lot of people writing about putting W flags on their parents' graves. We got somebody who wrote in about that, didn't we, Stefan? Yep. And it sort of becomes bigger than just those fan bases, though, either in a positive or, or negative way. You feel kind of <laughs> overwhelmed and annoyed by uh, the Red Sox or the Cubs thing, or, you know, no matter what, it, it becomes just a part of American sports lore and history, and we all get caught up in it, whether we're rooting for it to continue or not. And there are just so few of those stories that um, have risen to that level. And I think with the Cubs winning the World Series, you know, arguably, Stefan, we checked the last big one off. Yeah, I think that's true. Because the other ones are, as you pointed out, Josh, they're really limited to the fan base. You know, here in Washington, sports fans can say they are long-suffering Suzanne Vavrick, one of our listeners, sent a gif of Ovechkin holding the Stanley Cup and another one of the last out of the 2019 World Series. And yeah, okay, that's great for Washington, but it is not a signature sports moment that we will remember forever. Everyone will remember forever. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make it less acute or meaningful for the folks who are are involved. But if we're talking about transcendence, then uh, yeah, I think that the Cubs are really a big one. And and it feels like there is kind of a sense of loss that there isn't anything like that out there to strive for. I mean, another one that somebody mentioned that just sort of opens up a sense of possibility and wonder was, and this is from Brennan Jordan, Leicester City winning the Premier League title. Um, We had a bunch of really fun segments with the reporter from Leicester on the show. And it just, we get these sorts of stories on the Olympics as well, but a true, true, true underdog story. Not like, oh, this Major League Baseball team that 
spends a lot of money and has a lot of good players. Hey, the Marlins won the World Series. <laughs> Woohoo. They finally got that that roll of the dice. Like this this is kind of playing an unfair game and in retrospect it doesn't make any more sense even though Leicester's doing well in the Premier League this year. Um it it doesn't make any more sense than it did um at the beginning when they had the like, you know, five figure to one odds or or whatever they were. 5000 to uh, one, yeah. And the fact that it was across an entire season. So it wasn't a fluke. It was like fluke after fluke after fluke after fluke. It's like compounding flukes made it, you know, really one of the biggest accomplishments and most incredible accomplishments in modern sports history across the entire planet. Yes. Um, and the reason Leicester City is doing well in the Premier League this year is because they won the Premier League in 2016. Those things are directly connected in English football, where everybody gets a shitload of money from television rights, but the amount that the top, typically six teams historically, or four to six teams historically have gotten, has vast, vastly surpassed the amounts that the rest of the league and teams that have gone up and down um, in promotion and relegation have at their disposal. And Leicester City has managed the fallout pretty well. They clearly have, you know, learned to use the money good enough in a good enough way that they're contending to finish second anyway this year. What about some individual games, Stefan? I'm just going to do some rapid fire. Yes, let's um, do that. And, and why don't you pick which one uh, stands out to you? So we already mentioned it, but Daniel Kahn says Cavs-Warriors Game 7, 2016. Mm-hmm. We also got 2011 World Series Game 6 between Cardinals and Rangers. Not any like huge big picture significance there, but that was an amazing game where the Cardinals were down to their final out. Um, we have the 2015 Super Bowl with uh, the Malcolm Butler interception. The Patriots uh, again losing 28 to three to the Falcons in the 2017 Super Bowl. And then, uh, if I'm going to give a mention to a game that I had no personal stake in, but was just a truly amazing moment, was the Auburn Alabama kick six play. Uh, Chris yeah. Davis returning the missed field goal and just having that in an instant. And this is just so rare in any sport, you, you know, even conceptually to, co- to come up with a possibility where this could happen, where Alabama has a shot to win the game on a field goal and on ex- literally the exact same play Auburn wins the game by running it back for a touchdown. It was insane. And it's those moments that if you can look back in time and say to yourself, that was insane. Those are the ones that ultimately we'll talk about. And again, it's the what makes sports great. It's that that the, just the, the complete and total randomness of that moment, you could not have imagined it. Though Auburn's head coach did kind of imagine that something could happen because he did have Chris Davis standing under the goalposts in the event of a short kick by the Alabama kicker, and it was a 57-yard field goal. But the audacity also of Nick Saban trying to win the game with a 57-yard field goal when Alabama has notoriously struggled with its kickers and then having it blow up in his face and it being Nick Saban and it being Alabama and it being this iconic college football game, the Iron Bowl, um, made that all the more resonant. And Alabama had argued to put a second back on the clock so they could try that field goal and ultimately so they could lose the game. And my favorite moment, uh, I might have mentioned this before, but if you watch the replay, which I have many times because it's very fun, Auburn has this just total convoy of blockers out in front of Chris Davis. And there is like about halfway through 
the return, there's an Auburn coach who is out on the white on the sideline and an Alabama player runs into him. And so Auburn had a kind of an extra defender, extra blocker. And uh, how amazing slash awful would it have been if they had called interference, if the refs had, had flagged that and, and said that the um, Auburn coaching staff had interfered with the Alabama tackler. We would have had an entirely different conversation about the kick six then. There were a lot of moments in soccer that for me personally were super exciting because I was at all of these games or it's most of the ones that I'm going to mention here starting with in 2010 Landon Donovan against Algeria last second goal which I celebrated with my brother my nephew and Mike Pesca in the stands of a stadium in South Africa. Nobody mentioned that in the Facebook thread. And it stands out to me because like the kick six, it was one of those crazy, unpredictable, indelible, insanely exciting, split second moments of euphoria and accomplishment and achievement, you know? And the, it's being part of a crowd that just explodes in happiness and disbelief is unforgettable. So that for me remains super high. And it's also super high because of what happened to the US soccer team after that, which was not that level of success and excitement that completely you know, fizzled out whatever promise we had from the 2000s and the early 2010s to where we are now. Helps it stand totally out. Rebuild. It helps it stand out. <laughs> um, but at the moment you're thinking, this is the moment where we are on our way to becoming a legit power. Even though it was Algeria and it was like needed to advance out of the group stage, you had that feeling like, wow, Tim Howard, Landon Donovan, these are athletes, soccer players that have succeeded on the world stage and now done it in front of the entire world in a highlight moment. How can this be the end? This is just the beginning. David Plotz punched a hole in my ceiling when that happened. Did he fix it or did you leave it there? He did not fix it, but he prov he provided emotional support while uh, while while it was fixed. <laughs> but that was an amazing, amazing, amazing play. And that's another one where I've actually watched the highlight again years later. The highlight and, and the compilation of fan reaction, which is one of the great videos of the 2010s. Stefan, you made one point therein that was uh, not as strong, which is uh, if you look back at the decade for the U.S. women's national team, there were so many amazing moments and they were not um, uh, diminished in any way by the fact that there were so many of them. That is true. And I was at many of those as well. I mean, I... <laughs> The 2015 final where Carly Lloyd scores from near midfield. Again, I have this visceral memory. I pick up my daughter who's in the stands with me and we are just screaming at the top of our lungs in utter disbelief. I mean, that again, that's one of the individual moment plays. That's top five for the decade for sure. And then it was just followed with other great moments and preceded by other great moments by the women's national soccer team. Abby Wambach heading in the ball to tie the 2011 World Cup quarterfinal against Brazil in the final seconds. Um, Megan Rapino posing at the 2019 Women's World Cup, a game that I was also at. Alex Morgan sipping tea at the 2019 Women's World Cup, which I had a dead-on view of with Chloe, my daughter. What the women's soccer team continued to do in this decade is what is incredibly hard for teams to do is maintain that standard of excellence and succeed beyond fans' expectations. 
just as an individual kind of instant in time, independent of what the outcome was, because this was the 2011 World Cup. They didn't win the title. This was just the quarterfinal. But that Abby Wambach header off of Megan Rapinoe's cross was the greatest moment for the women's national team, I think, just as an on-field soccer play down to the last second, down to 10 women on the fields, uh, that can't be topped. Right. And facing elimination. It was remarkable. All right, let's do a little more lightning round from our listeners. Yeah, somebody mentioned, uh, it was Jeff McIntyre, Alex Honnold's free soloing El Cap in 2017. I was really late, actually, to watch the documentary Free Solo. I only did it this year, a few months ago. And yeah, that was pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And in that category, I think we should include, even though there is more sort of technological help, Elliot Kipchoge's sub two-hour marathon Um, Brad Tanner said, I predict it will be a record-breaking, although not an official record broken, that is a milestone in history. I tend to agree because, as Brad points out, it's going to sort of – it's recalibrated our thinking about what's possible. All right. We should probably mention, Josh, that there was a Triple Crown winner for the first time in 37 years this decade, American Pharaoh. That's worth worth pointing out. I'm definitely going to nominate that as the most significant sports moment that I didn't care about and continue not to care about. Yes, I will agree with you there. Anne Haig May said that South Africa winning the Rugby World Cup in, in, in 2019 under the leadership of the team's first black captain deserves our mentioning. And I agree with that. Yeah, and I think that's a good, you know, reminder that, and you know, we have uh, our cricket correspondent Tim Lowell talking about the 2019 Cricket World Cup and uh, Stokes leading England to a tie slash victory over New Zealand, including an improbable six runs when a throw hits his bat. It's a big sports world out there, Stefan. And so, you know, even if there's stuff that isn't typically on our radar, we like to mention it on the show and certainly acknowledge that. Um, our personal interests are kind of shaped by what we grew up watching. And I can totally imagine a world in which I grew up in a different place or you grew up in a different place. And we were doing this whole segment on cricket or rugby. And we're obviously not alone out there picking our best moments of the decade. Lindsay Gibbs and her Power Plays newsletter did a top 20 list of great women's sports moments for the decade. And there are honestly someone there that I had forgotten about um, that are worth mentioning. Just Castor Semenya winning the 800 gold in Rio while she was under scrutiny for her gender. The Minnesota Lynx wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts and speaking out against police brutality, which dovetails with another athlete that we didn't get to, Colin Kaepernick. If you pick iconic sports moments, Kaepernick quietly sitting down on the bench and then taking a knee certainly has to be up there. Um, U.S. hockey winning gold in in the Olympics after threatening a boycott um, because of gender discrimination, and the U.S. women's soccer team raising concerns about pay equity and filing a lawsuit against its own federation. Those are all important moments, I think, from the decade as well. Some of the other big issues of the decade, Stefan, include rising awareness about uh, concussions, also um, just really awful stories about sexual assault in sport that brought much needed attention to that issue, whether we're talking about Penn State or Larry Nassar and USA Gymnastics. One of my favorite moments, Josh, is from the 2018 Winter Olympics. Did a segment with the guy whose voice we're going to hear in a second. Let's play the clip. They're all completely gassed! He 
keep giving it everything on the global bucket. Steven Nelson leading Jesse Diggins into the final turn. Can Diggins answer? As the roars rattle around the cross-country stadium in Pyeongchang, Sweden, the U.S. and Norway come into the line. Here comes Diggins! Here and the outside. Diggins making the play around Sweden. Jesse yes! Diggins yes! to the line. Yes! And it is yes! Jesse Diggins oh! delivering a landmark oh! moment that will be etched in U.S. Olympic history. The first ever cross-country gold medal for the U.S. That was Steve Schlanger on the play-by-play and Chad Salmella with the call that would define those Olympics and maybe many, many Olympics to come. Justin Peters and I interviewed Salmella after his call went viral. Um, I compared it to Howard Cosell's Down Goes Frazier call when George Foreman knocked down Joe Frazier in 1973. Another visceral sort of spine-tingling sports moment. I think uh, we all gave it everything on the club Obakan this decade, Stefan. And what better way to end than with the club Obakan that started it all. And a promise, Josh, that we will give it everything we have on the club Obakan of the 2020s. Here, here. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls. And Stefan, let's go back to Lindsay Gibbs's list of the 20 top women's sports moments of the decade. And one that she mentioned was Arike Ogunbowale, uh, clinching the championship for Notre Dame by hitting two straight buzzer beaters in back-to-back games in the NCAA tournament in the Final Four. I don't think we've ever seen that before. One of them was against UConn, which is the biggest sports dynasty of the 2010s. Yeah, we didn't we didn't mention UConn's 126-game regular season winning streak in the 2010s. That was a good streak. Yeah. And Agumbawale is such an amazing uh, surname that uh, it makes me feel great to remember her shining moments and to uh, give her the final... Afterball honoring of the decade. Stefan, what's your Agumbawale? Our listener zeitgeist for the decade, Josh, dovetailed with my personal one. There were three main themes that popped up a lot for people and for me. The first one is uh, one that listener Rick Zinn noted. Soccer, a real shift in what we watch, he said. John Semlak replied that 1999 and 2002 started the trend for women and men's soccer in America, respectively. But it's hard to argue that this wasn't the decade that soccer in this country really began to matter in terms of eyeballs watching, writers covering and fans caring. 
The second reflects my own sports consumption shift. I took my daughter, Chloe, to three women's World Cups, 2011, 2015, and 2019, during which she turned 9, 13, and 17 years old, plus a couple dozen more national team and pro matches. This was the decade I all but stopped going to games with a press pass, so my choices of what to attend reflected my place in life, caring less about seeing my teams and big events and more about sharing sports with my kid. It worked, by the way. She's an obsessive Premier League fan now. And finally, number three, which we'll hear more of in the bonus segment, youth sports. I afterwalled last year about Chloe's crazy high school field hockey shootout win against a team that had a boy on the field. I've talked about, of course, coaching her rec soccer team, the Power, and our beloved mascot, Power Bar, whom I'm hoping to bring back for one final season in the spring before the girls head off to college. So I'm going to combine those three things, soccer, women's sports, youth sports into one moment. Spring 2013, the power's in the fifth grade. The team is playing in the all-girls division, which is totally the way to go, parents of girls. But this weekend, I agreed to play a team in the co-ed division, which is almost all boys, the hoppers. My girls are really nervous. They know we have a couple of really talented players and a few good ones, but the other team is all boys, bigger, faster, more aggressive, right? Then the game starts and the power is holding their own. The hoppers score on a scramble in front of the net, but the play is totally even. The girls realize that the boys' size is a non-factor. They're not that much faster. They're not better passers. Maybe they're more aggressive, but also less disciplined. The girls are fighting for the ball and staying with it when they lose possession. At halftime, still trailing just one nothing. I am supercharged with praise and inspiration. Do you see what's going on out there? I tell them, you can win this game. We do one loud round of our signature cheer, we are the power, and head back on the field. They go. Our best player, Sophie, scores a few minutes later. I feel like Norman Dale against South Bend Central or Herb Brooks against the Russians. One of the hoppers buries his hands in his head in shock. One to one. The boys are good sports and good players, but I can see them starting to panic. And their coach, a woman, isn't helping. She's shouting a ton. And when one of their players gets hurt, she screams incredibly, it's just a girl. The girls are winning balls and dribbling and passing past the hoppers, but they just can't finish. With a couple of minutes to play, the boys score on another scramble. Hoppers two, power one. After the game, the boys couldn't be sweeter. That was the hardest game I've ever played, one curly-haired kid says, and I want to hug him. I tell the boys that they played hard and fair, and it was a terrific game. They compliment me on how well the girls played. The boys' parents tell our parents how great the girls are. I'm not sure I've ever been as happy after a game, any game, in which the other team has scored more points than mine. When we gather, as we always do, to talk it over and hand out power bar. I congratulate the girls on their victory. They correct me that we lost. I tell them no. They won in every way except the final score. And when I start to tell them why, I can see in their faces and hear in their voices that they get it. Work hard, defy expectations, down with the patriarchy. You did it. You won. That was the 2010s for me, all in one game, soccer, youth sports, women's sports, a decade of the power. I hope the girls will remember it in the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, and beyond. Josh, what's your agumboale? So it's actually the same game, but from the other perspective. And it was just great that um, as a, you know, the the boys beat your girls. And, and I think that 
Um, you know, I was I was just happy to to see you go down to defeat. No, no, no. That was beautiful. A beautiful story. Thanks. And I'm uh, happy to have heard it and to have shared in all of those uh, moments vicariously over the past decade. Um, for me, the biggest, most memorable sports moments of the decade were as a spectator. And uh, it started in February of 2010 when the Saints won the Super Bowl. And as we mentioned, this was, um, you know, not one of those big national stories to the extent that it was. It was kind of about post-Katrina, even though this was uh, a little bit more than than four years later. But, you know, the Saints were a big part of my childhood and have been a big part of my, my life growing up. They were never very good, but, um, you know, they, they didn't win a, a playoff game until, um, you know, their fourth decade of existence. Uh, they went a long time without even having a winning season, but um, they're just such a huge part of life in New Orleans, even if you're not a big sports fan. It's just uh, a, a part of growing up here and, and being from here. And the way that the city came together to enjoy and appreciate that championship run. Um, I was there when they beat the Vikings uh, to win the NFC championship game. And then in the Super Bowl, when they beat the Colts and, and Peyton Manning, Tracy Porter's uh, you know pick six is his interception to kind of seal the game late in the game, the onside kick right after halftime. Uh, it was just a, an, an amazing moment and won uh, many, many, many years in the making and wouldn't have been as sweet uh, if it hadn't taken as long um you know and and then after the fact there was uh the bounty scandal that came out and um you know how that played a major role in the championship game against the vikings um they also had one of their key defensive players darren sharper was like a horrendous sexual predator and um you know this is about how sometimes the things that are outside the game and and outside the sport really uh can impose themselves on games that you look at uncritically and that I I think it's part of growing up and being mature that you can uh, sort of uh, appreciate the fact that this was uh, a great moment and a a great game, even if, uh, you know, and and the fact that there were these these things that might uh, take it down a peg, even if your memory is still um, of it being this kind of beautiful and pure thing and that that can't be adulterated. Like we have to hold these, these two things in our heads at once. Right. Um, and you know, the, the decade was really bookended for me with LSU beating Alabama. I think I'm not going to say LSU beating Oklahoma this year. Uh, we're going to let that sink in for maybe a couple more days to see if that is the top moment of the decade, Stefan. But again, this like eight year long losing streak, to Alabama, like in 2011, uh, 2012, when they lost to Alabama in the championship game, I remember a friend of mine listening to the segment we did about it, Stefan, and saying, I've never heard you that angry before in your entire life. You're usually <laughs> on such an even keel, but this is obviously such a visceral and horrible in person. Just like seeing your team just get so thoroughly decimated and destroyed like that on the biggest stage was just not uh, very fun or, or very cool. And so seeing um, this this amazing season, fun season, this great offense, record-setting um and seeing it kind of culminate 
for me in, in that game where they went on the road, they beat Alabama in kind of validating what this season was. No matter how it ends, um, that'll be a really great kind of on-field moment for me that I won't forget. I want to end the decade by saying that I'm really glad that I had someone to talk about sports with for an entire decade and that it was you. Yeah, I feel the same. And I don't want to uh, gas us up, Stefan, and just talk about how great our show is. So I will not do that. But I will say I appreciate the con- kinds of conversations that we've had on the show. And um, obviously, we wouldn't have been able to have those conversations if it wasn't for you uh pointing the way and and leading the way. And uh, yeah, I look forward to many years more of good and fulfilling sports talk here on The Fan. (laughs) It's Josh and Stefan. We're changing the format for the 2020s going rogue. Why don't you read the credits? Let's go out with, uh, with a nice credit read. That is our show for today and for the decade. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you probably want even more hangup for the 2010s. In our bonus segment, Josh and I will read some of your submissions for personal best sports moments of the decade. This is highly personal, but the Seahawks 2014 season for a confluence of reasons. Had just moved back to Seattle for daughter's cancer treatment, the community built around the team, the player she befriended, Russell Wilson's involvement with Seattle Children's, doctor let us go home early from the hospital to watch the game, and then it ended how it did. That was the uh, Malcolm Butler interception. Might be weird, but that is my answer. Daughter is good now, almost five years post-treatment. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Josh Levine, thanks, Josh, for a great decade. Thank you, Stefan. Back at you. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.